This is the Norris Group's Real Estate Investor Radio Show, the award-winning show dedicated to thought leaders shaping the real estate industry and local experts revealing their insider tips to succeed in an ever-changing real estate market. Hosted by author, investor, and hard money lender, Bruce Norris. I thank you for joining us. My name is Bruce Norris, and today we have a very special guest, Doug Duncan. Doug is the Senior Vice President and Chief Economist at Fannie Mae, where he's responsible for forecast and analysis of the economy and the housing mortgage markets. Doug also oversees strategic research regarding the potential impact of external factors on the housing industry. Well, there's been none of those, so that's not been a problem. He leads the house, <laughs> <laughs> he leads the house price forecast working group reporting to the Financial Committee. Under his leadership, Fannie Mae's Economic and Strategic Research Group won the NABE Outlook Award, presented annually for the most accurate GDP and Treasury note yield forecast in 2015 and 2016, the first recipient in the awards history to capture the honor two years in a row. Welcome back to our show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I've got a question about the Fed, because there's a lot of people that are confused or concerned about them. So who is the, who is the Fed? And is this a profitable venture that they're doing for themselves? <laughs> um, the Fed, uh, uh, short for the Federal Reserve System, uh, which is a system of one uh, central bank in Washington, D.C., and 12 regional banks uh, in, in uh, various cities, um, which would have been very important financial cities in the early 1900s when the Federal Reserve's banking system was developed and, and authorized in legislation in 1913. Uh, so you see, for example, Richmond, Philadelphia, Boston, Cleveland, New York, so a heavily concentration on the East Coast. You don't see much on the West Coast, San Francisco, pretty much. Right. Uh, it's basically the, it's both a regulatory body that oversees uh, aspects of banks which are members of the Federal Reserve System, which is really all banks, so they have a set of regulatory responsibilities. Others who have regulation in that space would be the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which preceded the, the Federal Reserve as a regulatory agency. And then the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is really an insurance company that insures deposits. So those are the, those are the primary uh, institution. There are also state regulators uh, as well, but it's, it also is the institution which uh, which manages our payment system uh, and oversees that. So, for example, uh, in the 2007 to 2009 time period, that was that was a major uh, uh, point in time in which they stepped in to ensure that capital markets kept functioning and uh, buyers and sellers of securities and debt um, had liquidity on which to transact those trades. And then they, they impact uh, interest rates in the market by managing reserves uh, within the banking system and providing uh, liquidity for the extension of credit by uh, commercial banks. So, they're they're a really a quasi government agency in that they operate independently from the the Congress and the White House. the 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 Federal Reserve Board, 
which is a seven-person board appointed by the president with the consent of the Senate. Um, each of those seats is a 14-year term. It was intended that way so that it would the terms would extend well beyond any individual president's ability to manipulate that board in a practical way. Uh, almost no one serves 14 years, uh, so they'll serve three or four or five years and then resign. And so someone else is appointed for the remainder of that term. The one that is different is the chairman, which is a four-year appointment but they also are serving one, simultaneously one of the seven, uh, one, one of the four, 14 year uh, terms. And so they could, uh, for example, Chairman Powell, uh, who served on the board before he became chairman, could, uh, if he were replaced when his term runs out, but still has time on his 14 year term, he could still stay on the on the board and that has happened in the past okay the i'm sorry no i was when when the fed grows its balance sheet like it did in the 2009 mess and now again probably to an even greater extent when they have a balance sheet is that something that they've created they've created liquidity kind of by a, a computer entry or out of thin air and they buy an existing asset? Is that kind of accurate? Uh, they, they will buy uh, off of the balance sheet of an, an institution that issues a, for example, a U.S. Treasury, they buy a U.S. Treasury, they hold that as an asset on their balance sheet, the cash that they paid to the institution from whom they bought it is then available for lending. So the, through that mechanism, they can create liquidity for banks uh, to uh, issue loans and uh, provide support for economic activity. Um, so, uh, and th these days, those things are done electronically uh, as opposed to actually passing pieces of paper back and forth. They're done through an electronic registry. Okay. Does, does the Fed itself have a profit motive, or they just try to keep things sane? They, they do not have a profit motive. Okay. Um, it, it's basically an intergovernmental transfer accounting, really. Okay. All right. Um, two articles I looked at before we started talking um, both came uh, out today. Mortgage rates sink to the unthinkable 2.92%. And housing prices expected to decline six percent year over year. So those two statements seem incongruent to me. <laughs> but I guess. <laughs> well, uh, so um, you know the three rules of forecasting: if you give a number, don't give a date. Uh, <laughs> if you give a date, don't give a number. And if you get it right, don't look surprised. Well, that two point nine percent mortgage rate—that's our forecast for the 30 year fixed rate mortgage for next year. So we've been expecting uh, and still expect some decline in the 30 year fixed rate mortgage because of a couple things. For one, we just spent some time talking about the Federal Reserve. The, the Federal Reserve, while if you look at the minutes of their last meeting, 
they had a discussion about what's called yield curve control. Okay. That is that they would buy and sell securities to manage the, the pricing or the interest rate on those securities within a specified range or at a specified level. They, they, in the minutes, they said, well, we're not adopting it as a policy, but if you look at what they're actually doing, it has the same effect. This is not new. This, if you go back in the history of the Fed to World War II, there was an agreement between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve that they would do exactly that to keep the cost of credit low, to, to, uh, to make the funding of World War II less expensive. In 1951, they signed an accord with Treasury to sever that relationship. So this has a historical precedent. And in effect, that's what's happening today. And our view is they will hold the 10-year Treasury rate, which is the, the base price off of which mortgages get priced, ultimately, uh, in the 0.8 to 0.9 range. And today, the spreads over that to the mortgage to the street rate in mortgages is wider right. than what it's been in the past. Right. Why? And because uh, one of the things that happened in the most recent market turmoil was that mortgage lenders could no longer sell mortgage servicing rights. There was no market for mortgage servicing rights. And the sale of those mortgage servicing, servicing rights is one of the profit centers that keeps independent mortgage companies liquid. So if they couldn't sell those, they had to hold on to those mortgage servicing rights, they're gonna widen spreads uh, to increase profit margins to stay in business. So now, since the market for mortgage servicing rights is starting to come back, some of those institutions are now selling those uh, rights off and can therefore reduce their profit margins. That's only a piece of this. The other piece of it is that interest rates are so good, there's a massive wave of refinancing underway. We think somewhere north of 1.6, maybe 1.8 uh, uh, trillion dollars of refinances this year. Um, we're, we'll up, update our forecast here in a couple of days um, uh, so you can see uh, what it is. But the huge wave of refinancing, and that is creates a capacity constraint in the mortgage business such that even if you lowered your spread uh, and interest rates, you couldn't do the business anyway, so okay. why would you lower the rate? Okay. So those are a couple of factors that are keeping the spreads wide. And as the volume of loans available to refinance falls because people have refinanced, then it's likely that competition will bring that spread down as well. So those are a couple of reasons why we think the mortgage rate will actually come down more. Um, just some unintended consequences of having this, this an interest rate so low. And let's say it goes, goes lower someday who knows when it'll go back up. So long-term consequences is that you're probably going to refi 90% of America that won't need a refi for the next decade. Yeah, that's right. Uh, no question. It's called typically the people in the industry's jargon for that is the lock-in effect. If you've got a 
a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at two and three quarters percent, what are the chances you're going to want to give that up? <laughs> Pretty slim. Well, not only, yeah, you're talking about not moving. I agree with that as well. But I mean, you're not going to need to refi. So the oh, no, definitely. But you may also, you know, I know that you work with some folks that are single family rental owners. If that's a property, let's say I bought that as my, my home to live in, but then I decided I wanted a bigger home. I could keep that. The funding cost for that house pretty low and buy another one. Absolutely. Um, uh, so yeah, there's several impacts of that, those very low interest rates. You know, I'm going to bring up something and you and I might've talked about this before. And I, what happens is, you know, you have invited me to speak in Washington, DC and it seems like it takes a while for things to happen in Washington, DC. I think there's unique, I, I think there's a unique. Sometimes that's a good thing. Other times not so good. <laughs> kind of got a unique opportunity right now. You got historically low interest rates. I mean, um, Sean O'Toole and I once went to um, the Library of Congress for three days researching interest rates all the way back to the 1800s. No joke. And trying to mm -hmm. figure out if these were the lowest rates ever. And so I mean, now they're even lower. So, okay, we've got the lowest interest rates, which means, ironically, that we have a chance to provide affordable housing. And we don't have, mm -hmm. to, we don't have to pay a dime for it. It's already there. So mm -hmm. from a credit perspective, that's right. That's right. So that's all that really matters to somebody on a monthly basis. So in Florida, um, you know, we're building houses that go for two thirty. If you match a two and three quarter interest rate mortgage on that, it's way less than rent. That would be, mm -hmm. a, that's a life changing event. So here's my, here's my suggestion. I'm going to bounce it off of you. Um, why couldn't we have for a couple year period, a nothing down loan program for an owner occupant, they qualify like a VA loan does, which is a very successful program where they have to have reserves and they have to have whatever a VA requires. But we give a chance for a lot of people who feel disenfranchised and in fact may not ever be able to own a chance to own. Now, I understand that's gonna create a failure rate. So let's do this as a, a loan policy. Let's say for just this loan policy, no state foreclosure uh, processes will apply, that if there's somebody that's late six months, then we do in fact hold a uh, foreclosure sale, but the opening bid is the late payments. The winning bidder takes over the loan. There's no REOs. There's no loss of principal. Whoever is the winning bid just makes the payments. Sounds uh, interesting how um, if you're, if the original intent was to create uh, owner occupants, a low cost entry for owner occupants, would you control the auction that it can only be other uh, entry-level yep. owner occupants? Sure, why not? The other thing is you can also allow that loan to be taken over. There used to be a program uh, FHA had, um, was called a simple assumption. The, mm -hmm. loan, the loans brought current, send in $45 transfer fee. Bruce Norris used to own it. Doug Duncan owns it now. No qualifying. You qualified by making the loan current. And you, you'd have a system. See, and you know, as you know, when the price damage happens is when REOs are massive and short sales are massive. I can't imagine, mm -hmm. I can't imagine a loan at 2.75 fixed rate for the duration of the loan 
ever being returned because there was a non-bidder. And by the way, I wouldn't, right. I wouldn't eliminate investors, but I would say, you're right. Let's give the consumer first round. And then mm-hmm. let's say there's, and I, I've been in those auctions. <laughs> Doug, I was in an auction one time. Now this, I wasn't at the physical auction, but VA had an REO list. There was a, there was an REO that was rented for five fifty. They had paid, or excuse me, they you know it was probably. I think the opening bid was thirteen grand. Went through the the round of owner occupants who all said no. This is probably ninety five, which is really really what spurred me on into writing that first report because I could not comprehend how real estate wouldn't be worth that purchase price they were you know, the, the asking price was 15 grand i bought it for 13.6 and i bought a car a couple of days before that for for two grand more than that house so there <laughs> there there are times where the investor is needed so i wouldn't completely make that uh, not a not happen but yeah be be my guest to put the owner up front because that just matters to me. It did anyway, Doug, honestly, I still remember mm-hmm. with emotion. I was, you know, mm-hmm. I, I got married at a very young age. The dream of owning a home was a big, big deal to me. And it seemed mm-hmm. like a long way out and took me about four years to get it accomplished. I still remember mm-hmm. mowing my own lawn on the Saturday, the first time and actually thinking I've, I literally have become a man. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You're, that is a, that is a long held, uh, probably not just American, but certainly an American ideal, uh, is the dream of homeownership. Uh, no question about it. And it does, it invests you in the community in ways that are important, uh, socially. That's right. Uh, for the I think yeah. I think we've got a chance to I think this industry and you guys in particular who control a lot of the mortgage market if you could create a product like this I mean I think it could go a long way to having people feel like okay wow I'm part of the deal now you know I'm building equity and I'm saving I'm saving money from my rent I mean there's never been a cycle like this if we don't take advantage of it in this way. I feel like we've really missed the boat. Question. I, I know you're building, I think, here in my hometown, Cape Coral. That's right. And it certainly is a Cape Coral's bedroom community for uh, lots of the uh, working places up and down the coast here. And it is very affordable, to your point. The question, the, given that the, the problem for the last four or five years has been that supply has grown less rapidly than demand has grown, I think the trick would be how do you get supply in place fast enough to take advantage of this while the the market rates are uh, are where they are because they're they're going to be where they are for a while. Well, but I I think it's, I think that's a really interesting idea. I'll, I will take that back and offline and probably contact you offline and talk some more about that. Okay. Well, to be honest with you, that's the one thing Cape Coral has, and so does that area. All of that area of Florida, it doesn't need any track lots being built. You already have the mm-hmm. dirt. So if you if you basically told pretty big builders, okay, we, we're going to have demand up the yin-yang. Uh, John Burns, give give a few people a call and say, go to go to Florida and build the heck out of it. It's, it's pre-sold, man. I, I think it could happen. I really do. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's definitely it, it, it's definitely happening. I mean, I, I was at my father-in-law's house last night. He also lives here in Cape Coral. And uh, within two blocks of them, there were three, had been three empty lots. All of them are under construction uh, right now. Uh, I think this is the fastest growing city in the United States at the moment because it is affordable. I'm flying there tomorrow. My wife and I, All right. yeah, we're, we're going to move there. And uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. So. Well, then we need, we need to connect on that offline too, so we can, uh, we can welcome you. Okay. Yeah. And give me a, uh, give me a heads up of, uh, uh, we've got a property being built that we were, it was a spec really. We might move into that uh, temporarily while we pick and choose uh, a permanent spot for, for a long period of time. Uh, awesome. Um, here's a, here's a good question too, about the coronavirus. We just touched on a little bit about interstate migration. So Florida is one of those recipient states It it always gets people, um, from New York and New Jersey. I would imagine that's going to be growing in rather large amounts, but it also gets money from California. There's a, Florida is the number one destination of money migration by a long shot. So Florida, hmm. Florida's billions of money coming into the state outpaces number two, three, four, and five combined. And that was on a chart a couple of years ago. So I think Florida is going to be, it, and that's one of the reasons I, I want to be there because a lot of our business is going to be in Florida as California's, you know, we got some rules going on in <laughs> California that are pretty... <laughs> Pretty scary. So there's a lot of people that say, you know what, I'm going to get the heck out of here. Yeah, there's uh, it, it is uh, it's a preferred location for a number of reasons. Uh, taxes, one of them. Um, the uh, business climate is a, it's a good business climate. Um, obviously, the people like warm weather. Uh, if you don't mind the occasional, very uh, windy, wet uh, event under the title of a hurricane, um, you know, uh, and you know, th- people are thinking about things like climate change, but that, um, it, it's still a highly desirable place to be. And, uh, it is in, in most areas of the state, it's an affordable, uh, state to be in the, the migration in the country. There, there's a number of things that impact migration. Most migration is actually within county. If you look at just when did people move their place of residence, that has to do more with career growth um, and you got a better job and you had kids and you moved into a bigger house. And there has been some discussion about whether we will see a systematic de-densification of our population. So. People observed the true anecdotes of uh, people in New York City. Suddenly, the the uh, house values in Connecticut rose dramatically in some sections as people were attempting to escape the city to get away from the virus. Or you saw, like you heard um, uh, when we talked before. Uh, about Bend, Oregon, the real estate market being on fire because of Californians moving north uh, to get away from the virus. Well, those are those are anecdotes. Whether 
there is sufficient movement of that type to say definitively that the virus has caused a behavioral change that will systematically reduce density is an open question. Okay. Bill Fry at the uh, Brookings Institute had done, done some work that showed, and you've, you've heard me tell this story before uh, and earlier, the earlier version of this story. So I'm going to add to it and I'll recap the, that version. This it already has been underway for four or five years because the millennials who were, who populated a lot of the growth of the urban core over the last decade are now having, are getting married and having kids and they're moving out to get more space. Right. Or, or schools or, or whatever. So you recall, we said all the early stories about the millennials learning the lessons of the crisis, the housing crisis of 07 to 09 was they're going to have 300 square foot apartments with amenities because they don't want to get into the losing the house category. We said at the time, that's not true because they're telling us they eventually want to own a home. What is true is the only place you could get a job was in the urban core so if the first thing you had to have to buy a house was a job, you were going to go to get a job. And if near that job, the only housing available was 300 square foot apartments, that's what you'd take. But your long-term aspiration, when employment grew and you had the option geographically, you would move to where you could own a single family house. And that's what's had. That started to happen in 2015. And we announced that. We said the, the millennials are now driving the demand curve for homeownership. That is still true. So that was already underway. The question is, how much did de-densification add to that issue? And is it sustained or is it a temporary thing until such time as the, the virus is under control, in which case there will be some return uh, impetus to, um, to the city because of the productivity benefits of concentrating employment in uh, smaller areas because there are clear productivity benefits from that. I think it's an open question whether that is a sustained move. And part of it, of course, has to do with the quality of that urban environment. If the quality of the urban environment degrades further, then that's simply an incentive to, to create what, you, what John Burns, who you mentioned earlier, calls Serban. Exactly. Which I, is, I just wrote yeah. that word on my sheet. Yeah, that's a great, John did a great service in coming up with that because it, some of the metropolitan areas are large enough that some of the outlying suburbs are now really urban themselves. In the D.C. area, the example of that is the Tyson Corner area, which is now a major metro area of its own, even though it's in the D.C. MSA. Because of the virus and also uh, tech, it seems like there's probably going to be new habits developed to where you go, okay, well, I don't have to go be interviewed in New York City, that type of thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. you travel all the time, and all of a sudden you probably haven't been, and Zoom seems quite acceptable. So I just, do you think there's that kind of reshaping of habits to where there'll be more things done from a distance? That's something we're thinking hard about at the moment. There's several attributes of that. My wife owns her own company, which has been a virtual company since its origins about 10 years ago, 
couple of weekends ago, she came to me and she said, I know you're talking at the Fannie Mae leadership level about working remotely in a long term, how, how that's going to work and all that. She said, but let me tell you a couple of lessons that I've learned. And all of her employees work from their home. She's got about a dozen employees. She said, I've turned over three quarters of my staff in that 10 years because there are actually a limited number of people who can be constantly productive mm-hmm. in a remote environment. So that's, that's one issue. Okay. Second issue is innovation takes place where nuances in conversation can be very important and you can't capture all that on a video screen. You need to be with people. And so she's had to fly them in at different points in time when they were working on a critical issue. So they could be together because they couldn't solve the problems without being together. So that's, those are a couple of challenges that, that will suggest, yes, I think there'll be more remote working than there's been in the past, but in certain categories of jobs. Okay. Because some categories of jobs have a constant productivity level that doesn't really change by proximity, but others, it matters. So that's one thing to think about. The second thing to think about is there was a story in the Wall Street Journal a few months back about 20 million, 21 million boomer homes that are big suburban homes that uh, their prices are all going to fall because there just isn't the demand for them. Well, guess what? If what you need now is an extra room for an office, even if it's only for half time, that four bedroom house is now actually a three bedroom house with one office or maybe a two bedroom house with two offices. Uh, because part of the time you're going to be working remotely. So maybe the value of that house is more sustainable than what you imagined uh, in the previous circumstance. That makes sense. Um, so, I, you know, I think there'll be some compromises like that. Last question, and I really appreciate you spending so much time with us today. Do we have elements of deflation or inflation coming our way? You know, it's really interesting to be in the economics profession today because there's a lot of debate which if it's stated carefully is questioning what have been some of the dominant macroeconomic theories and their validity and as you as you probably are aware there's a new theory called modern monetary theory yeah that has emerged as well because some of the previous theories couldn't explain why the federal reserve who's been trying to get inflation up to two percent on a sustainable basis for the last decade has had almost no success at it. And so that's given an opening for others to try to start explaining things. In one sense, interest rate controls and holding rates at very low levels is a form, a sort of a inverse form of inflation from the perspective of people on fixed income, but with savings that they were intending to to spend the earnings on. If you're only getting 1% interest on your savings account and you had planned because of history that you were probably getting five percent right that's probably the reason that you're a checker at the grocery store at the age of 70 when you had planned not to be that right Um, that's a so that's not deflation it's it's sort of a the flip side of inflation if inflation's running at seven percent and you're your savings accounts are only running two, uh, 5%, you're losing 2% purchasing power each year, right? Well, it's sort of that in reverse. And could it, could there be deflation? Uh, certainly. Uh, that's part of the reason that you're seeing experiments in negative interest rates around the globe. 
uh, which our uh, Federal Reserve Bank has said they don't prefer to go there, but they haven't absolutely said they wouldn't go there, just to, uh, although just, it's hard to see the, the value of that. Just conf- to confirm what you said, they would go there if they were trying to protect against deflation, correct? They might. They, they've said they don't, they don't view that as a policy tool that they want to use. Correct. I, but I, they haven't said under no circumstances will we use it. That's the thing about right now, and it's there's a lot of things that you're putting in place. It's hard to it's hard to unwind, um, mm-hmm. and that's the danger. You know, when you got Fed balance sheet that could go up to whatever you know, and many trillions of dollars, the world. Yeah, we think it'll be about eight trillion by the end of this year. Yeah, so you know, we the the economy had a conniption, what a couple of years ago when they reduced it by mm-hmm. hundreds of billions. So. I guess you you start to see okay is this permanently a fixture going forward that your balance sheet's going to be this and interest rates are going to be two percent it's at some point right. you know and I think that modern monetary theory basically says the level of debt doesn't matter that's correct that's pretty much what they're saying I don't subscribe to that myself but in a sense we're testing that right yeah. now right but if if you fail the test, so then we have another word. Is that jet, uh, debt jubilee? That's a, those are troubling questions um, you know, to which uh, we don't presently have the answer because we've never we've never been in this circumstance. We're we're at the levels of federal debt now that we were when we were fighting World War II. Exactly, and and we're not fighting World War II. But we're, so. we're fighting a war, I guess, though. That's interesting. We are yeah. war against the virus. Yeah. Okay. Doug, thanks so much. You bet. My pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For more information on hard money loans and upcoming events with the Norris Group, check out thenorrisgroup.com. For information on passive investing with trust deeds, visit tngtrustdeeds.com. The Norris Group originates and services loans in California and Florida under California DRE License 01219911, Florida Mortgage Lender License 1577, and NMLS License 1623669. For more information on hard money lending, go to thenorrisgroup.com and click the hard money tab.